Please remain standing and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Our reading this morning will be the first 14 verses. Exodus 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be to you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Father, we thank you that we can sing with thankful hearts, that we have been bought with the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ. Help us now as we continue in the worship service um, to see the reality of that song made manifest by the power of the Spirit through the Scriptures. You'd impress upon our minds and hearts, Lord, the victory, the defeat of the enemy, and what it means for our lives this very day as blood-bought saints for the glory of the Lamb, our Savior Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. We thank you. Amen. Please be seated. Please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Uh, If you're visiting with us here today, we are delighted to have you with us. And uh, ask that you wouldn't rush off, but that you join us in the fellowship hall just across the way here. Um, Get to know a few people, so we're more than delighted to have you, so don't take off. There's really nothing else going on today anyway. (laughs) Revelation chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 today. Um, I'll cite the the chapter, pretty much the whole chapter, but we'll look in detail at the first 11 verses, and then we'll get back into the rest of it next week. So here now, the Word of God reads, Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. 
And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. Our God, we ask now that you will enable us to see all that has been accomplished for us in Christ that we would appreciate all that is being accomplished also here now in this present age as we anticipate a new heaven and a new earth because of what has been accomplished through Jesus Christ, the Lamb, our Lord. pray in his name. Amen. Revelation chapter 12 serves as the hub of the entire book of Revelation. If any of your friends begin to study the book of Revelation, you can counsel them to start in chapter 12 so that they can get a better grasp and understanding of the whole book. For once you look at chapter 12 as the hub, you'll see how everything else relates. Now, as we've looked at the first 11 chapters thus far, we see that those chapters deal with the drama of Christ's church being persecuted from an earthly perspective. Obviously, the vision goes from earth to heaven a number of times, but the real emphasis is on God's people being persecuted for the name of Christ. We see that the kingdom has already been established by the first coming of Jesus Christ, and we're simply waiting for the consummation of that kingdom, that is a new heaven and a new earth. Temporal judgments are being poured out upon an unbelieving world, only to foreshadow the final coming judgment when Christ comes in glory. Now, from chapter 12 on to the end of the book, the, the, the vantage point shifts from an earthly perspective showing us the spiritual realities going on behind the veil of heaven, so to speak. The veil has been torn back now. And what we witness is the cosmic reality 
in heaven to everything that's going on down on earth. That's the title of the message, Behind the Curtain of Earthly Conflict. Now last, last week, if you were with us, we witnessed the second coming of Christ. We saw that he's coming in glory, he's coming when we least expect it, and he's going to glorify the saints, and he's going to judge all those outside of Christ. There's no forewarning, it's, he will come like a thief. But here now, in the middle of the book, we can, if we set ourselves in the position where the church that originally received this letter was, they were under heavy-handed persecution. So think about the church of Smyrna, for instance. Jesus said, some of you are going to be thrown into prison, some of you are going to be put to death. In the midst of that, you can imagine yourself as a Christian in the first century asking, why? Why is this happening to us? Why are we about ready to be imprisoned? Why have we been imprisoned? Why have some of our beloved brethren died vicious deaths? Why was it that the church of Philadelphia and Smyrna were plagued, surrounded by what Jesus referred to as a synagogue of Satan, false belief systems surrounding them? Why was Sardis, why did they have the reputation of being alive where Jesus said, you're actually dead? Why was the church of Laodicea neither hot nor cold, but repulsively lukewarm? Why is the church from then to this very day constantly fighting against opposition, be it governmental or personal hostile antagonistic efforts against those who hate Christ? Victims, time and time again. Why is it that the church, true legitimate ministries, strive and, and have difficulty financially? Why was it that Timothy was, Timothy was fighting opposition, not only from outside of the church, but also from within? Why is there always media attention given to the church only when there's fraud or scandal? Why is so much of the professing church today infused with false doctrine? Why is so much of the ministry within the church hindered because those that profess to be Christian actually idolize theology and it just keeps them secluded and isolated to themselves? Why is gossip and slander an ever-present threat that disrupts, disrupts the unity within the church? First century to this very day. Why is pastoral leadership and authority often criticized and resisted within the church? Here's a question. Why do so many truly saved Christians struggle with the assurance of their salvation? And why have all these things always been this way? And why will they continue to be this way until Christ returns? Now, how we overcome them is pilgrims, beloved, kings and priests of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll conclude with that this morning. You can know how to conquer these very kind of things in your own life as we conclude at the end of service this morning. But I want you to see first the cause of this opposition, the cause of such hatred and greed from outside of the church. 
and the cause of folly, selfishness, and gullibility from within the church. And what we have to understand is that those causes are only secondary causes to a much greater cosmic cause. Primary cause. Now, this is all, of course, under the sovereign framework of Almighty God, and the answer to those questions are right here in chapter 12 and 13. But what we see here is the cosmic impact, bottom line, of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the fact that he became a man, and in conjunction with him becoming a man, all of the events associated with his birth and the cosmic reality of the spiritual war that goes on to this very moment and what it means for you. There's an assault of the forces of evil to undermine and destroy the redemptive plan of God. But he's a defeated foe. It's a defeated enemy that is attempting to do this. So the point of our focus today will be verse 11, which is the remedy in in, in order for you to daily conquer, here it is, lies of the enemy. Okay? We'll save that for last. But first, what you want to be able to understand are the great signs and symbols being revealed for us here in this, the first 11 verses, and what they mean. So we'll look at that first. We want to look at who is this woman giving birth, who is this great red dragon, and what is it about this great cosmic war, and what does it mean for us today, all right? So first, let's focus in on this woman who's about to give birth, verses 1 and 2. I mean, who is this radiantly clothed pregnant woman? Verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Now, anytime John writes about a great sign, anytime we read about a sign in the Bible, a sign, first principle of understanding with signs is that a sign always points to what? Something greater than itself. Such is the case here. So the question for us is, what does this dazzling sign of a woman depict for us? Well, as you may or may not know, countless interpretations of this verse have been provided. Some believe that this represents Eve, the first woman in the garden. The Roman Catholic Church say, without a doubt, this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Another view, more popular view, is that this is ethnic Israel, where... They cite here uh, Genesis 37 where Joseph has that dream of the sun and the moon and the 11 stars and they will eventually bow down to him, his 11 brothers, him then being the 12th star. But I, I think another more satisfying view is that this woman represents not ethnic Israel, but true Israel. True believing Israel who truly believed and looked forward to the promised coming Messiah. So we would see this as God's spiritual Israel. Jews who by faith looked forward to and longed for this Messiah. But also this woman represents the church and the new covenant community who in verses 6 and 17 are also referred to as a woman and offspring of that woman. Those who came into existence through the accomplished work of Messiah. That includes you. 
That includes me. So therefore, the 12 stars on her crown, most likely beloved, point not only to the 12 tribes of Israel, but also to the 12 apostles of the church. Number 12, as you know, is John's expression for all the people of God. Back in Revelation chapter 7, we see 12 tribes of 12,000 members. And later on in those verses, we see that it refers to a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. A view of them from earth and a view of them from heaven. In chapter 21 of Revelation, God's people are described as a bride. They're described as a woman. They're described as a city. They're described as a new Jerusalem that sits upon 12 foundation stones, which are twelve the 12 apostles. And that city has 12 gates, representing 12 tribes. That then is a representation of the old and new covenant people of God. The true Israel, if you will. Measured as 12,000 times 12,000 times 12,000. So it's a reference to the believing community of God's people who lived with the hopeful expectation of Messiah along with those who were birthed out of his coming. True believers before and true believers after the Lord Jesus Christ. So here then, Israel was pregnant with this great messianic expectation. While believers looked and anticipated the one who would come. So that then, beloved, is the sign that John is referring to here. There's another sign. It's of a completely different nature in verses 3 through 6. Notice, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head, seven diadems. Once again, as is common with Revelation, it draws from imagery of the Old Testament. For instance, in Psalm 74, dragon is used to refer to Egypt. In Isaiah 27, dragon is referred to uh, um, Assyria and Babylon. In Ezekiel rather 29, uh, the dragon is referred to as Pharaoh himself. All of these were enemies of God. Here now in the Revelation, the term dragon is symbolic language to the one who is the ultimate enemy of God. The one behind Pharaoh, the one behind Babylon, the one behind Assyria. And that's defined for us more clearly in verse 9 who is the devil and Satan. There's the red dragon. Now, as you know, Satan is non-corporeal. In other words, he's not physical. physical. He is a spirit being. He cannot create anything. And he's described here as having seven heads and ten horns, so we don't want to struggle to think, you know, how do ten horns fit on seven heads? This is all symbolism. But what this describes for us is the fullness or the breadth of his power in an attempt to persecute the people of God. Seven heads symbolizes his shrewd and crafty wisdom. Ten horns represents his great power. He is powerful. He is crafty. And oh, he is wise as a serpent. He has seven crowns or diadems, which gives him the appearance of having very impressive influence. Now, this is not the uh, victor's crown or the victor's wreath. 
that one earns in running a race in the Olympic uh, races or in the Corinthian games there, the Isthmian games. But this is a crown, as uh, Bible commentator Kistemacher puts it, is a crown of pretended royalty. A crown of pretended royalty. Because Satan is a counterfeit. And Satan is constantly attempting to rival the omniscience and the omnipotence of God, the all-knowingness of God and the all-powerful God. The rival. So adding then to, to the travail of this woman's difficult pregnancy is this dragon waiting to devour the child that is promised to be born. So as the promised and ever-expectant mother, she becomes the object of attack and assault of this red dragon. So here, you can imagine this red dragon waiting at the knees of this, this, this pregnant woman, waiting for this child to come so that he could devour this child. He's tried to snuff out the woman. He hasn't been able to do it. He will now try to snuff out this child. Notice verse 4, his tail, this great red dragon, swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Now, I was taught that this meant that Satan took one third of the angelic host when he originally rebelled in heaven. But that's not what is in view here, beloved. Theologians agree across the board that Satan's rebellion took place in eternity past. And it's not that original rebellion rebellion that is being conveyed here. There's very few clues that we can draw from Scripture that tell us anything about his original rebellion. But what we have before us here being described is the time of Christ and the time of Christ's victory. And the dragon's tail sweeps down to trample the stars, beloved, of verse 1. And who are those stars? That's the people of God. And he can't devour them all. He cannot annihilate the people of God, but he certainly does trample upon one-third of those people because God allows him to do so. This brings to mind Daniel 8. It says, Some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the what? The saints. Now, the original... Um, intention there of that prophetic voice in Daniel refers to Antiochus Epiphanes who would attempt to destroy the people of Israel. So seen here in Daniel, he is referred to as a type pointing forward to the satanic power that we now see in the Revelation. In his rage against this woman. His rage against the people of God. And then notice verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. First, beloved, it's very important that we understand that although Satan's power is indeed impressive, it is not comprehensive, beloved. It is limited. The power of Satan is limited, meaning he can do nothing outside of the sovereign purpose or the providential will of Almighty God. Absolutely nothing. You remember the story of Job. 
You see, Satan came before God to accuse Job. God initiated the conversation. Have you considered my servant Job, who's a righteous and upright man? And what did Satan say? He's only like that because you have a hedge of protection around him. Remove your hand of protection, he'll curse you to your face. Really? Go ahead and touch his life, those things around him, but do not touch his person. And he was given the opportunity to do that, and he destroyed his children, and he destroyed his riches, all because God allowed that to happen, you see. And then, of course, he came again, and because Job didn't curse God, and he said, well, sure, flesh for flesh, bone for bone, you know, touch his person, he'll curse you. So God allowed that. And in the end, God was glorified. And in the end, Job received twice as much as he ever had in the beginning. It was Martin Luther who said, the devil is God's devil. And he has sought to destroy the woman from the beginning. Now, what is the ultimate background of this? Well, it's Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? Back in Genesis 3 is where God pitted the serpent against the woman. A warfare between two seeds. After cursing the land, after cursing the serpent in the Garden of Eden, it was God who said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Christ coming crushed the head of Satan, but in the process he was bruised. So ever since Genesis 3, the serpent, that dragon, has looked upon the faithful people of God, this expectant mother who possesses a direct threat to his existence. So he rages against her, you see. So in Genesis to Revelation, we see the same characters in view. Serpent, dragon. The woman, the offspring of the woman. A promise and the fulfillment of enmity set there by God. I mean, we read of this enmity in Satan's efforts repeatedly from Genesis to Revelation. From Cain murdering Abel, between uh, the division of Ishmael and Isaac, Esau versus Jacob, Pharaoh killing all the Hebrew children, Edom versus Israel, King Saul's efforts to kill David, and Haman's plot to annihilate the Jewish people. And what about when we get to Matthew chapter 2? A very vivid direct attack. It says, when he, Herod, saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. So Herod, in his prideful jealousy, in his envy and in his ignorance, was a tool of Satan, you see, to destroy this child. And the greatest effort, of course, put against this child was on the, at the crucifixion itself, which was all according to the plan of God. So all these conflicts are simply the outworking of enmity put there by God from the beginning. So why opposition and hostility against God's people? Why division? Why jealousy? Why envy? Why rage? Why gossip? Why enmity between these two seeds? Well, God placed it there. You see, for you, beloved, your struggle 
is not against your harsh, cruel, or callous boss. It's not against your uh, hostile neighbor who knows you're a Christian and can't stand you. This doesn't have to do with your unruly or disobedient child directly. Those are secondary causes, beloved. The primary cause always go back, goes back to this real conflict. It's enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the dragon. This is a spiritual war. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities, against powers, against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. Some of you may be asking, man, I thought you told us Satan was bound. Didn't we study that? Yes, he is. He's bound from what? Deceiving the nations. He can no longer deceive the nations. That's why the gospel goes out to the four corners of the earth. And as the gospel goes out with the people of God, they're persecuted for that truth. Persecuted physically, but secured spiritually forever. Security and suffering. Simultaneous events that we experience as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we get to verse 5, we see a very brief outline, a summary of the birth, of the life, and primarily of the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, his enthronement to the right hand of God the Father. Notice, one verse. She finally gives birth to the male child. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That, beloved, is a direct fulfillment of Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. You can just mark that down. We don't have time to look at it. This male child who rules the nations with a rod of iron, that is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Psalm 2? You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus applies that psalm to himself in Revelation chapter 2. When we get to Revelation 19, the scripture reads, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So really, verse 5 is this kind of accelerated vision of Christ from his birth to his ascension and his eternal reign. Again, this is great imagery. And then in verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. That again is a picture of the persecuted church. That's the time allotted for the Gentiles to trample the outer court as we looked at in chapter 11, verse 2. 1,260 days, which we covered in the past, is also symbolic Uh, to three and a half years, to a time, times and half a time, and 42 months. Those are all references to the same period of time. And it's a time reference that goes back to the bloody violent persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes from 167 to 164 BC. A bloody persecution of Israel until the Maccabees stood up and fought and took back the temple And since then, the Jews have celebrated Hanukkah. So this then, this three and a half years, 1,260 days, time, times, half a time, 42 months, whichever one you use, whichever one you read about, has became at this time a cryptic phrase depicting God's people who are both vulnerable yet kept safe. They, They suffer heavy persecution, but that persecution is for a limited time. That's why it's three and a half short of seven, which means completeness or fullness. 
it will end. So God's people are, are eternally safe and secure spiritually, but at the same time are prone to attack. You're in Christ, you're sealed. He can do nothing about your soul. The enemy can do nothing to your soul. Oh, God may allow him to have you killed, persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, in this world you will suffer. But we can rejoice because he's overcome the world. We will suffer like our master. All who follow Christ, they will suffer in one way or another. You may be railed against, you may be mocked, you may be ridiculed. Your friends may laugh at you. Kids, your friends may laugh at you because you love Jesus. But you can rejoice, right? Because Jesus was mocked and ridiculed. Remember, Isaiah, or no, um, Elijah, was driven into the wilderness. He was afraid. He, he was scared of a woman of all things, Jezebel. And during that time of his trouble, God provided nourishment, literal nourishment, food. He brought him food by, by the way of, of ravens, an unclean animal who provided. So God provides for us in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial, he nourishes the woman in the wilderness. So there then, beloved, is the woman who's persecuted, who's expecting this child, gives birth to this child. There then is the great red dragon. And notice in verses 7 to 11, this heavenly cosmic battle. This now depicts for us the direct results of Christ's victorious life, death, and resurrection. Now, verse 7, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Okay, now notice, who initiates the war? It's not Satan. It's Michael. Michael and his angels, they initiate the war as ordered from their commander, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Satan who fights back. But, verse 8, he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, Prior to this redemptive event, beloved, Satan apparently had access to heaven where he continually accused and assaulted the woman, the people of God. That's what he did with Job. He had access, but no more. He's cast out. This war produced by the victory of Christ, also produced the defeat of the enemy. And he's cast out all because of the redemptive fruit of Jesus Christ's birth, life, death, and ascension. Verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, John mentions here the falling of Satan a total of five times in three verses, beloved. That means pay attention. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, and that's what a good teacher does. He's, he repeats himself over and over again so that the people of God understand this. You see, Satan knows that his opportunity to attack and scheme against the church is very limited. But because for the 1,260 days that the church will be here, which again is symbolic for the time between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ, that's the time that he's allotted to scheme against the church. 
We see in verse 12, he's come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So although he's a defeated foe, the church for a limited time must endure this wrath. Trampling of the nations, right? Outside court. Notice in the middle of this, this beautiful interruption, verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. In other words, what? The finished work of Jesus Christ which produces salvation, which produces the power of the gospel. In this, his already established kingdom, not yet consummated, but established. For you are kings and you are priests in the kingdom. The kingdom established and conquered by way of the gospel. The keys of the kingdom which unlock blindness and darkness by way of the glorious gospel truth. So verse 10 is not some prophetic view of something that occurs at the end of the age. This took place as a result of the first coming of Christ through his life, through his resurrection, through his ascension because he, beloved, rules and reigns now. That's the picture. And then notice the result of the battle also in verse 10. The accuser, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So as a result of this battle, what we see here is that every accusation, do not miss this, believers, every accusation of the enemy against the people of God has absolutely no legal standing or influence whatsoever against you. Zero. Now, what about before the cross? Well, think about this. Before the cross accusations brought before God about the people of God were legitimate, were legally recognized, and justifiable. Okay? They were justifiable. They're true. They're liars. They're hypocrites. One minute they worship you, the next minute they're worshiping a rock. Right? But now by the finished work of Christ, this is why Paul can say there is therefore now no what? condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he's been cast down. Thrown down, important, when we think of being thrown down, this this, this is not necessarily a a geographic relocation of Satan. Remember, he's non-corporeal. This is apocalyptic language that describes the absolute and utter defeat of Satan. See, before Christ came, the sins of the people for which the enemy accused them of before the throne of God had not yet been expiated. Their sins had not been removed from them, nor had they been atoned for, paid for. Satisfaction had not yet been applied. Reconciliation had not been made yet. But now, any attempt of accusation railed against you as a believer in Jesus Christ is now met by and stopped by your mediator, Jesus Christ, who stands between you and the Father. They don't even make it there. Jesus just points to himself. Oh, yeah, he fails. Yes, she fails, but they're in me. No condemnation. Jesus Christ intercedes for all that he atoned for on the cross of Calvary. 
In other words, beloved, all any liar accusation brought to God against his people is counterattacked, defended against by none other than Jesus Christ, the one who atoned, the one who provided expiation, the removal of your sin as far as the east is from the west, you see. Now understand this, this is very important as sojourners, as pilgrims, as servants of the Most High, since Satan has absolutely no ability whatsoever to accuse you or any of his people before God, his accusations now are limited to earth where he accuses, guess what? Your conscience. He accuses the conscience of the believer. You remember, Satan's referred to as the devil here and Satan, he's referred to the devil, which literally means accuser, slanderer. He slanders your name to your mind. And his plan is is to spread false and malicious reports about you to God, but only in your head because they don't make it to God. And that's what you have to remember. They don't make it to God. You see, Jesus destroys condemning accusations against you because he condemned sin in the flesh at Calvary. Becoming a curse. Having been condemned himself. This is one of the reasons God hates gossip and slander, beloved. He hates gossip and slander because of the root of gossip and slander. The devil So Satan's accusations, they don't end with malicious reports about you to God. He also spreads false and malicious reports about God to you, which he's been doing from the garden. Hath God really said, God's fearful that the day you eat, you'll be like him and you'll know everything. And he's fearful and jealous that you'll be like him, right? So he lies to you. No, God is not paternally caring about you. He does not have fatherly affection for you. Just remember your own dad. Don't forget about your dad. He's not any different than your dad. That's a lie. Satan wants you to think of yourself in terms that are absolutely contrary to what God has already declared you to be in his son. Forgiven and secure. He's the accuser. He's been cast down. Mark down this text, Colossians 2.13. He has forgiven us, which trespasses, all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, Christ. Defeated, destroyed. What power does Satan have? Only what you allow him to have. Jesus spoiled all principalities and powers along with their accusations, you see, defeated by the death blow of Christ, triumphing over them by way of the blood of his cross, the blood of the lamb, the blood of the cross. So Satan roars, oh yes, but he's been defanged. Remember Pilgrim's Progress? There's Pilgrim wandering, and on each side of this pathway are what? Two roaring lions. But what he couldn't see is that they were chained. He didn't see the chain. He couldn't see the chain. It's when he passed through looking forward that they couldn't attack him. 
They were chained, but the chain was invisible. Conquered, defanged. To cite Luther again, he said this, the enemy might kill the body, but he can never destroy the soul. And that, beloved, is the framework for which Satan is being described here in Revelation chapter 12. Defeated foe. He knows his time is short. So he's giving his best shot to destroy the woman. He failed. He gave his best shot to destroy the child. He fails. Notice verse 17. So he's furious. He's furious. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. That's you. That's you. So the woman of verse 1 are God's faithful people leading up to the coming of Christ. Her offspring is you. Her offspring is me. And as a result, we're persecuted for a time, 1,260 days, three and a half years, time, times, half a time, between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the amount of time that he has to mess with the church. So do you feel like you're in a desert? Okay, believer, if you feel like you're in a desert, you can shake your head and go, that's right, because I am. You are in a desert. That's where we are. You're not in the promised land yet. You've been promised the promised land. You're promised the new heavens and the new earth, but the new heavens and the new earth haven't arrived yet. We wander and we're protected by our Savior. Secure, eternally speaking. Oh, you might suffer physically. If you die, you go to be with him. Like that. So how, how do we overcome the accuser of our brethren? How do you c- overcome the one who accuses you to your head? How do the first century believers overcome the one who accuses them night and day? Verse 11. They have conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So they are participants, first and foremost, in the weapon that defeated Satan, that is the blood of the lamb. We've gained victory over the dragon by our acceptance of Jesus. They gained victory over the dragon by their acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to gain victory over Satan and hell? You must believe in Jesus alone for salvation. You must place your faith in Christ alone. You must repent of your unbelief. You must come to Christ completely, fully surrendering by faith. Faith. So they can no longer be accused of damning sin because Jesus paid sin's penalty. But although Satan knows that, he puts up a bitter struggle. He fights against that. He knows his time is short. Now notice how these believers conquered Satan. They conquer him in three ways. Number one, the blood of the lamb. Number two, by the word of their testimony. And number three, by not loving their lives even unto death. First, the blood of the lamb. See, Satan can do nothing to you. But what he is able to do, if you allow him the room in your head, beloved, is is to attempt to undermine your assurance in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He wants to undermine and sow seeds of doubt about your salvation because of your failures. 
Have you failed this week? Has anyone failed this? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Right? We all answer yes. He wants to eat away at your confidence. This is why you must take up the shield of faith. This is why you must learn Ephesians 6 and the whole armor of God. The shield of faith is to be taken up and that thing quenches the fiery flaming darts of the enemy. Ephesians 6.16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Flaming darts of temptation, flaming darts of accusation launched at God's people to tempt you into sin, to tempt you into doubt, to tempt you into unbelief. He attempts to lure the believer by ways of lies that he invents invents about you to God and God to you. This is what Peter meant when he said, 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour him. To devour, rather. Resist him. How do you resist him? You stand firm in your what? In your faith. Firm in your faith. John's saying the same thing. He's saying this. Remember, Christian, who you are and whose you are. You're a blood-bought sinner, saved by grace, owned by Christ. Stand firm by faith on that truth in that reality. I've been telling my kids that since they were little. Remember who you are and whose you are. Parents, remind your kids. Remember who you are and whose you are. You're in Christ. You're covered by the blood of the Lamb. He owns you because he paid for you, you see? And then they'll remember that when they're being tempted out there. Instead of, you know, why do we go to church just to sit and be quiet? No, we go to worship God because we're saved. Amen? Because we're blood-bought saints. What did Jesus say? I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, fallen angels, nor rulers, demonic hosts, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything that is in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All victory is established and maintained by Christ's work on Calvary. So when you're accused, where do you go? Back to Calvary. You go back to the cross. You remember the cross. You recall the cross. You preach the cross to yourself. And the enemy has nothing on you. All he can do is what? Lie. That's all he can do is lie. You're a second-rate believer. That's what you're here. You're a second-rate believer. Look at your past. You're an embarrassment. What are you going to do for Christ? He's right. I can't do anything for Christ. Yeah, it's all about what Christ did for you. And then you respond to that. That's the whole point. That's Right? You can't be forgiven of that horrendous crime from your past. His grace don't cover that. That's the lie, right? His grace doesn't cover abortions. His grace doesn't cover theft. And his grace doesn't cover murder. This man called me this week. He tried to get a hold of me all day Monday. And, uh, Finally, we spoke, and he was staying at a Motel 6 down by uh, uh, the, uh, the airport. So we're talking, 
And when people call and they want to talk to the pastor, you never know why, because some people make a living going church, 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 just getting money, and you never know. So I was really pleased to hear that he says, man, I just wanted to talk to a solid Christian brother. I'm like, what's up? He goes, well, I'm out here from Washington, D.C. I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, and as a child, my father abused me in more ways than one. He goes, because of that abuse, I was driven into the homosexual community. He goes, I wanted to get away from my family in Eugene, Oregon, so I went to Washington, D.C., and all I did was preach homosexuality. I led the parades. I did it all. He goes, but then Jesus Christ met me, and I'm saved. He goes, I started going to a church, he goes, once they got to know me, the guys were a little resistant, and so I went to another church, and uh, it's, a, it's, it's a new church out there, and uh, things are going well. He goes, but I'm in the last stages of dying of AIDS. He goes, so I took a train up to Eugene, Oregon, because I wanted to go preach the gospel to my family face to face. And I said, let me ask you a question, brother. I said, have you forgiven your father? He goes, that's why I went. He goes, I stood there and I faced my father and I said, Dad, I want you to know I forgive everything you ever did to me because of the blood of Jesus Christ, which saved me. I said, what did he do? He said, he rolled his eyes, he shook his head, and he went downstairs. He goes, I grew up in a family that was spiritual, new age type of people who hate Jesus and they still hate him. He goes, they would rather have me back in my lifestyle that had me serving Jesus and proclaiming Christ. You see, the battle's not flesh and blood. These are spiritual forces of wickedness. This is, this, this is the seed of the woman and the seed of the lamb. That's what he's experiencing. So he got a plane, or a train, he can't fly because of his medication. He has a train ticket back to D.C., to his home, to his brethren, to live out the last days of his life. Forgiven. There's consequences to that, but he's saved, he's secure. It's a done deal, you see. So it was a great conversation. But the enemy comes, you know, he'll say, you can't be forgiven for that past lifestyle. As a matter of fact, he'll lie and say, you think about the thoughts you have every time you read the Bible. Think about the thoughts that come through your mind. Think about the thoughts that come through your mind when you're sitting here worshiping your God. You ever have that happen to you? Wonder where those comes from? Those are flaming darts, man. They can only be quenched with the shield of faith because they will come. You know, you're a hopeless victim of your past. You'll never change. How do you respond to those attacks, beloved? How do we respond to this? You plead the, emerit, the merits and the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is what kind of creation? He's a new creation. My friend on the phone that I just met, I spoke with, he's a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. Okay? Now, by faith. And what we will be has not yet, been appear has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him. But not until then. So we fight these lies by faith and the truth of God's word, the blood of the lamb. That's where you go with it. That's where you go. That's how they conquered the devil. That's what the context. They conquered the devil by the blood of the lamb. 
The accuser, notice secondly, they conquered him by the word of their testimony. So the basis of their victory is the blood of the lamb, which results in their willingness to testify of the lamb. Okay? They were actively engaged with their minds and their mouths because their identity is is in Christ and they want to make it known that their identity is in Christ. So the word of their testimony extends not only from evangelism, but also into worship, beloved. Now think about this, okay? In corporate worship, we sit here and we sit here and think, okay, we're here to worship God. But remember this, the physical components of our corporate worship, they're not of interest to God. Whether, oh, they have drums. Oh, guitars and that stuff is not true spiritual worship. We have to sing a cappella. Let me tell you something. God could care less about either and neither does the devil. Okay? Period. End of story. How you sing, whether you have tambourines and a piano or an organ, does not matter to the Lord. He is looking at the genuineness of the heart. So when the enemy sees the genuineness of the heart versus some, you know, pietistic stance, like we're just, we're going to stand here like this and sing, um, that makes me holy. Or on the other end of that, the guy who runs around the most saying, man, I'm really spiritual because I'm the guy who really loves Jesus. Doesn't matter. It's a matter of the heart. When the enemy discerns the genuineness of the heart, you know what he does, Beloved. He flees because you're drawing near to God. And when you draw near to God, he draws near to you and the enemy splits. You see? He splits. So that kind of heart is another reminder of Christ's victory, which is founded in his blood so the enemy can't stand. He splits. He can't accuse in that context. Thirdly, they conquer Satan by not loving their lives even unto death. See, these redeemed sinners did not value their their lives more than the message of the gospel. They did not value their comfort more than they did the gospel. That's why they were persecuted. You know, it could be applied that neither the comforts of life, uh, material security, uh, societal conveniences, or even life itself were grounds for compromising their faith, let alone denying faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing was so important to them. Nothing was so precious as the gospel. In other words, they loved Christ more than peace, prosperity, and power. But you see, this love is a reciprocal love. Because we can only love him because he first, what? Loved us. So these people under great pressure, facing prison, prison, facing torture, facing hunger, refused to love their lives even to the point of physical death. And God grants us that grace if we need it. You probably won't die for your faith here, okay? But let me tell you this, for us, wherever the fruit of the Spirit is dominant, the devil flees. You want to have a healthy church? Draw near to Christ. He'll flee. He won't be able to mess with us, man. You see where I'm coming from? Wherever sexual immorality, enmity, strife, rivalries, divisions, and, 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 and envy are crushed and smothered by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness, and self-control, this already defeated dragon, the devil, splits. Why were these Smyrnian Christians 
imprisoned, martyred? Why are believers martyred today throughout this world? Why is gossip and slander an ever-present threat to disrupt unity within the church, beloved? Why do these believers struggle? Why do you struggle with your insurance? Verse 12. Because Satan, the devil, has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. He can't do anything about your salvation, so he wants to mess with your head. Because that's all he can mess with. So the cosmic reality of devil's, the devil's defeat is that he knows his time is short, so he furiously makes war with the woman's offspring. The war is over. It's over. It's just a battle now. So all you're experiencing here is, is tremors of this cosmic war that he lost because of the blood of the Lamb. Amen? So the destroyers attempt to annihilate the child, to annihilate the woman, to annihilate her offspring, which is Jesus and his people, was crushed by Jesus. He crushed it. Having lived the perfect sinless life, he died an atoning sacrificial death. He rose in powerful resurrection. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits upon his ro- ro- throne, ruling and reigning with a rod of iron. You've been freed from the law. You've been freed from condemnation. You've been freed from all railing accusations against you because of the blood of the Lamb. That's why we come to the table this morning. That's what we celebrate this morning. The captain of our salvation has destroyed the devil. This is why Paul could say in his benediction to the Romans, and I close with this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blood-stained cross. We thank you that we are recipients of a grace that was established in eternity past, set forth in the Garden of Eden a promise of enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We've been a delivered people. We've been a set free people. No accusation can be railed against us. Lord, I pray that we'll trust in that and that we, in response to the blood of the Lamb, would testify with our lives and with our mouths and that we would not love our lives even unto death. May we, by your grace, be such a people as we now look to you as we come to the table in all that you've accomplished on our behalf, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, friends, as the men begin to hand out communion, this is an ordinance that represents believers taking spiritual nourishment by way of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus is only one way or you believe that there are many ways to God, you're not a Christian. It is faith in Christ alone that one believes. So again, this is a time for believers. And it's for this reason that Pacific Hope Church invites those who've made a credible profession of faith to join in the Lord's Supper. Truly believe by faith alone and Christ alone.